this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Dig Me Out. This week we're chatting with semi-sonic drummer Jacob Slichter, author of the 2004 book, So You Wanna Be a Rock and Roll Star. Here's the interview. Closing time, this room won't be open till your brothers or your sisters come. So thanks for doing this. I just, yeah. I just uh, reread the book, so I'm... Uh, Excited to talk about that and, and other stuff. Just wanted to give you like a little bit. I don't know if you had a chance to look at the website or check any of the episodes, but our background is in college radio. It was right around the time when you were touring for, I guess, the first album and then the second album was when we Jay and I were in college. So we were we, we, college. We went to Bowling Green State University in yeah. uh, Northwest Ohio. Yeah. Were you anywhere near uh, Woxy? Is it W-O-X-Y, which is sort of like a small indie station in, in that neck well, of the woods? Uh, that's more southwestern. Oh, okay. But our music director uh, named Matt Shiverdecker, or Shiv, uh-huh. was from that area, grew up wanting to be a W-O-X-Y DJ, and then okay. after college became a WX, WXY DJ um, and then relocated with them down to Austin where they oh, folded. I, Austin? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, well, they got bought out by a, a, some oh. like company that was moving them online. And <laughs> um, after a year of being in Austin, they just shuttered the place. And so he's still down there. Okay. And then Jay moved down a couple years ago for a, a job. So everybody's moving down to Austin. That's the uh, that's the hip place now. Austin is wonderful. Yeah, it's not so bad. Yeah, it's a great place. Except for the, you know, the heat. The heat is uh, terrible, but it, it's not so bad in in March and January. You're loving it. Yeah, exactly. You get used to it. Even even uh, even in the hot months, you you just yeah. get it. You get used to it. Same way I got used to you know winters in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Yes, you just barricade yourself in dorm and blast the, uh, <laughs> right. the air conditioning so, as high as possible. Well, in Ohio, you barricade yourself in, ha- in the house for three months. Right. I've determined that the only perfect place to live in the United States is um, Santa Barbara, California. That sounds like a pretty good deal. It's 75 degrees all year. It never changes. Yeah, that's that's pretty sweet. Yeah. Unfortunately, it costs $2,000 a month for a 800-square-foot apartment. Yeah. So it's uh, it's ridiculous. Yes. Um so I mentioned uh, that we um, or that I, I revisited the book and uh-huh. it was kind of funny going back. It's the, it's the first time I've ever reread a book, which is I don't know <laughs> if that's sad or impressive. It just means you value your time. It, it does. Well, I got so many books to consume that. Yeah, I can't uh, I can't go back. Yeah. But there was so much stuff that uh, I, I remember when I read it back in I think came out in 2004. So I probably read it. Shortly thereafter, either 2004 or 2005. And I remember thinking back then what how odd it was because nobody from the 90s had ever written a book or very few people. It would be a uh-huh. couple of years before Bob Mould wrote his book and Juliana Hatfield and a bunch of other people. So getting this like behind the scenes look at what we were on the opposite end of, you know, we would be getting these boxes of CDs from record companies with like 50 different bands every week. Right. And we'd be like, Oh, how are we supposed to figure out? We got, you know, 20 spots for our top rotation. We've got to figure out which ones are going to go in there and seeing how, you know, the labels were dealing with the big stations and you had all the people pushing the, the albums. It was so interesting. And I, I think the, the thing that amazed me the most though, was how much information you were able to, either recall i guess you did some online journaling for touring is that right yeah um i mean the, so as far as the details some of it i captured in journals at the time um some of it uh or i i was sort of triggered from memories where 
you know, I look back through some of our old tour itineraries, for instance, gotcha. and just seeing a, sh a club name and a date suddenly brings back, you know, oh, yeah, that was the night that blah, blah, blah happened. And then a lot of it is I'm just someone who remembers a lot of stuff, you know, and which is maybe one reason, like, I became a writer. Because I just, you know, the things stick in my mind. And my bandmates, after, you know, when they read it, they were like, God, I remember all this stuff, but how the hell, you know, that all came back to me, but how the hell did you ever remember it? Um, so I do think that I probably, I probably have a sort of, um, you know, my, my memory is probably a little more uh, focused than maybe average, an average person's memory. When that you sounds like you, Tim. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Tim, Tim was the guy in the band that I can ask, hey, wh who do we play with? Or he'll remember, yeah. like, every band name, every horrible band name that we ever played with. Are you the same? Like, you just, yeah. that stuff just, yeah. I can't remember anything. So uh, I'm always I'm always amazed by that ability. <laughs> yeah, Jay, after college, Jay and I were in a band together for 10 years. So oh, okay. we have plenty of horrible band you know experiences never to the obviously to the level of of uh semi-sonic but at least on the local level of playing with bands with terrible you know puns on marijuana for their for their <laughs> band names and stuff right. like that and <laughs> abracadoobie and Abra camarijuana yes. and <laughs> well when you play, cetera, when you play a legalize it festival you're going to end up with those <laughs> with those yeah. bands um so when you did you go back and actually talk to people so that you could get the like the verbiage from conversations down? Because that's the thing that I guess amazes me is that you can recall like I can remember things that we did or, or bands that we playlist, but I can't really remember because this is going on now 10, 12 years ago. I can't remember the exact conversations. I know that what was discussed, but I can't remember like what we actually said. Did, did you go back and talk to those people and say, what was our conversation about? Or do you remember what? That was, or was that more no, like? No, I remembered it. I mean, I gave everybody okay. a chance to read the book. Um, there were two instances where John and uh, one instance each where Dan and John corrected my memory of a conversation. Okay. Um, and and so and then I corrected it in the book. The main thing I talked to people about, uh, I talked to MCA people about what was going on at the label and how the machinery all works because that was stuff I didn't really know at the time. Okay. So we would hear, I mean, I heard things like about Dr. Evil, you know, he hates you and, you know, we, we kind of knew that at the time, but I didn't understand all of the politics of it. Or, for instance, the, the workings of the sort of basically legalized payola system that was in place with a lot of commercial radio at the time. I, I didn't really, I knew that something weird was up, but I didn't understand the exact workings of it until I researched the book. One of the things that I relayed to Jay, since he didn't have a chance to read the book, was about your concerns about recoupable uh, amounts of money that were being <laughs> yeah. you know, spent. And, and you had a, a point of the book where you were like, well, we must have spent like $20,000 $20, at this point or $50,000. And the guy was yeah. like, oh, no, you've spent a half a million dollars. in." Yeah. And I'm curious about, um, you know, even though Feeling Strangely Fine went on to sell, you know, estimated a million. I'm sure it's been more since then. It's um, like a million and a half, a little over a million, like a million and a half or something. Yeah. In terms of the record company, did you ever recoup? We never recouped our recording royalties. We're still, um, you know, probably a million or so dollars unrecouped. What wow. that means, what that means, is not that they come to your house and say pay up. Right. That debt, um, it's it's called debt. What it what it is is it's what stands between you and receiving any royalties. So when they spend money on your behalf, it's as if they're spending out of your future earnings. Right. And they're saying, okay, well, now you won't see any of your royalties until you sell this many records. So um, so that's what that means. And, and when you're talking about those royalties, you're only talking about royalties on 
sale of the actual album, you're not talking about songwriting. That's a separate entity, right? That's a separate deal. Yeah, those are uh, publishing royalties are different, and we okay. did recoup there, and thank God. Okay, and then also, and you know, the landscape has changed so much yes. for bands. They don't sell really. Albums have become a, a flyer in Mike Watt terms to get somebody out to a show, and it's really touring that's pushing a lot of the bands now to be that they can stay alive is they have to stay out on tours and do big festivals and, and yeah. that kind of stuff were you guys because i know sometimes based on management deals you know they do these like 360 deals where all of a sudden touring income becomes a part of the overall expenses was that separate or was that something that was also calculated in terms of your recoupable uh, well, tour support was part of our, uh, you know, added to our recoupable debt. Okay. Uh, and that was significant. Um, you know, here's the deal is that because of file sharing and things like that, the record sales have plummeted, which means that record companies just have a lot less money to spend on bands. So, for instance... You know, we had, when we made a video for $65,000, that was a sort of shamefully low budget. But nowadays it might not be. Nowadays it might be like, wow, I can't believe they gave you that much money to make a video. Right. So back then, you know, um, when, you know, a big selling record would debut platinum maybe or half platinum. You know, like I remember Ricky Martin sold like 600000 records in a week and that was like a big deal now i mean the numbers are much much lower you know tour support and things like that have now um gone away they're, they're nothing like what they used to be right and they used to pay for you to have a tour bus and i can't imagine they have the money to do that now i mean i i the, the, the truth is i don't know but i i do know that the amount of money that record companies will spend on bands now has just plummeted. Sure. Now, in reading the the part about making the video for closing time, that made me go back and watch the video. And I, uh -huh. the thing that was crazy to me was not that the video, the way that the video is directed with the with the single take on the two sides, um, was looking at the counter for how many people have viewed the video for oh, yeah. closing time. It said about 40 million views, just under yeah. 40 million. And then I went to Spotify and there's that song by itself has 47 million plays. So that's roughly that's almost 90 million between those two uh outlets. Right. Which kind of blows my mind in the sense that you have still have recoupable money that you owe the label yet there's 90 million hits of between Spotify and YouTube that they couldn't figure out how to properly monetize. So how would they monetize it? It's a great question. I mean, because obviously, I mean, everybody says, you know, um, I mean, listen, I'm not, uh, I'm no big fan of the record labels, but the thing is with YouTube and Spotify, you know, um, it's basically like people say, well, the record company shouldn't be making all that money. And I say, yeah, that's fine. I, I can go with that. But then, why should you? Why should Google and Spotify be making all the money? Right. Well, absolutely. And I think and that they they were reluctant to get on board with new technologies to start with. YouTube was a was a wild west for a long time. I don't. Know, I don't know that they're really worried about the technology. They make all their money from ad incomes. I mean, I just think about all the money that. You know, were, were any of those, was that uh, closing time link? Was there an ad that ran before the song? Yeah, and it was up by an official source. It wasn't up by, like, some fan put it up and got 39 million who had, like, like ripped it off of MTV. Like, yeah. It was up from an official, like, and I know YouTube does provide some sort of monetary kickback for, you know, views and then advertising based on... But I'm no. When I'm saying like they weren't on board, like the record labels were. I mean, they were reluctant when file sharing came along and didn't see how they could use that, you know, in a beneficial way. And you talked about it in the book with Shaggy. I mean, that was a song that got pulled off a of Napster. 
Yes. And turned into a 12 million selling album because some DJ in Hawaii, you know, heard the song and was like, I'm going to play this. And all of a sudden, because he downloaded a song and, you know, in that climate, that was unheard of. Everybody was, you know, as far as on the music side was going after the Napsters and various uh, file sharing. I mean, I think it's a good example of like, you know, my, my feelings about file sharing are kind of... I don't have us. I don't come down necessarily all on one side or the other. I think one thing that, um, you know, people, people who hear music and have access to like try music out without having to buy it, sometimes end up buying a lot more music because they're plugged in, you right. know? And, um, I do think that if you just like get greedy about it, and I do think the record companies were greedy, um, then you you lose people. On the other hand, when people say, well, music belongs to the people, my question is then, what about healthcare? Does that belong to the people? Because there's surely a lot of musicians who could use some healthcare. And, um, you know, there's some musicians who could use some student debt relief and things like, like that. So I just feel like, um, I'm thinking here mainly of like I, we, we knew plenty of bands, great musicians who like worked and worked and worked and they they had a major label deal for like five minutes and, uh, you know, didn't really walk away with any money or anything. Uh, their songs are out there, you know, getting heard by some people and they really don't get any money for it. So some some way everybody's got to be taken care of here. Um, and right. I think that's the, I think that too many people who say, well, music belongs to the people are not, you know, they're sort of saying, well, I don't want to take care of like Michael Jackson and Adele and that's fine. But what about, um, you know, what about bands who work hard, show up, play great shows, don't make a zillion dollars and in fact have trouble meeting their rent maybe some accommodation you know we need to sort of think about that right and and there's the argument to be made that those big artists have to float the smaller artists while they're developing you know i mean really the the the, the where i come down is this that the problems of the music business are the problems of the economy at large we have an economy that is like really imbalanced where a few people make a lot of money and everybody else is struggling. Right. So there's no reason to expect the record, you know, the, the music business would be any different than that. Um, so we need to sort of, we need to look at this. Well, and to your point on the, on the quote unquote, the greed aspect, I think the thing that I discovered recently that was a, a, a kind of indicative of what the problem was, when CDs were originally introduced, you know, they were set at like, you know, sixteen, seventeen, ninety nine. It was crazy. It was so stupid. It was really expensive because it was a new product and they hadn't you know, when the when a product becomes embraced by the population, the natural progression is that the price of that product comes down. Like H D TVs. Like those have dropped dramatically from when they were originally introduced because they're producing more of them. It becomes cheaper to produce them and you can sell more cds never came down no they never did and it was so stupid and i mean it was well it was very calculated but it was an example of the record companies ignoring their own long-term self-interests right um because it certainly did not cost them 16 dollars to make a damn cd no and when we actually started making our own cds and realized how cheap it was yeah it it was almost like I almost felt bad charging $10 for a CD because I'm like, it only cost us really like a dollar to make this CD. And that's us. That's a little band from, you know, Columbus, Ohio, printing up 2000 CDs yeah. out of Canada. I can't imagine how much it was costing the record labels. It must have cost them nickels to make CDs. Yeah. And they're charging $15, $16.99 for those CDs throughout the 90s. You know, part of what the occurs now, just to be complete about this, what the record company will tell you is, mm-hmm. yes, but um, the winners have to pay for all the losers, and right. there's a lot of losers. And so there's a lot marketing of and yeah, they and... poured tons of money into records that never went anywhere, um, which is probably 
there's some truth in there. I don't think enough truth to cover the fact that it was just a damn greedy way of doing business. Yeah, I mean, they get away with a lot of um, excuses that no other industry could of course could make. Of course. <laughs> of right. course, I can't think of any other jobs where you you know you're indebted to your employer for every every penny that they spend on you <laughs> before you ever get, actually get paid from them. I mean, there's right. just so much about it that is unique and uh, just yeah exploitive. I guess for lack of a better term. Right. Right. So, and I, I wanted to say about the YouTube stuff. I mean, keep in mind, um, you know, there are people building careers as YouTube celebrities. I mean, they're making enough money just from advertising, the kickback they get from the ads that run on their channels to to support themselves. Some very, very well. So it just makes me wonder. I had never thought about this, but um, say your video, you know, if they are, if that's being licensed to like a Vivo or somebody who's, yeah, it is Vivo. Yeah. Yeah. Who's putting that stuff up on YouTube. Well, I want to bet. I know Vivo is getting paid for that advertising and I'm wondering, does the record company get a cut of that for those 90 million spins or 40 million, whoever the artist might be. And then is that, you know, part of what is, uh, does that go against what's recoupable? You know, there's well, a, there's a it, lot of it's a perform. Um, I believe it's a performance royalty. So um, there's probably a licensing fee. Um, you know, you really what you really need is a legal expert here. This is right. a mean just kind of. Well, is it kind of like the radio? I mean, is it equivalent to if the song? Well, that's what I would think. In which case, it would be a performance royalty. Yeah. Um, however, uh, because there's picture attached to it. Um, it's not quite like the radio and the rules kind of change. But part of the problem is, you know, now they're uh, cutting back on what song, on the songwriting royalties that musicians can get. So um, it's, you know, there's, there's different sides to it. Listen, I don't want to necessarily, I'm not, I'm not, I I just don't know enough about the internet to come down Mm -hmm. on it, you know, but I do think that, um, a lot of what people argue, they, they, they look at where their self-interest is and dress up the argument that way. Sure. The, uh, the record companies will say, this is unfair to artists. The record companies don't care about the artists. And people who don't want to pay money for uh, recordings will say music belongs to the people. And that's just bullshit. They don't really believe that. What they really think is, I don't want to pay money for the recording. So what are your thoughts on, uh, before we leave this topic... Uh, did you ever imagine when you made that video that 20 years later it would still be easily watchable and that people would still be watching it and potentially 100 years from now? I guess I never even – no, it, I mean, you don't even have – the kinds yeah. of thoughts you're having that I was having as, uh, well, after this single, then we'll have that single. And right. Take over the world this way. And, and I didn't I, – I was thinking about taking over the world and, you know – Probably a thought that wasn't too far removed from what you're describing, but not that particular thought. Just you know, something to do with like, oh, here's how we'll, here's how we'll, you know, rise to the very top of the biz and not be denied. <laughs> ha ha ha! <laughs> maniacal laugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maniacal laugh. Exactly. Um, so, in terms of the book, I'm curious about. Did you start coming up with the idea for the book separate from, like, were you just like, oh, I've got these journals, I think I'll put them together? Or did somebody approach you and say, hey, you know, would you be interested in documenting your time in the band? Like, where did that genesis for the book actually come from? It, um, I got um, a couple of my road diaries onto uh, Morning Edition on NPR. Okay. And then... Um, a publisher called me up and said, hey, what about writing a book? And I thought, hey, that's that would be kind of cool. Uh, and so that's kind of how I got going with the idea. Okay. And it turned out to, to publish it with someone else, but that's how, the, uh, um, that's how the idea sort of came about. And have you read any other books from musicians from the same oh, era? Yeah, there's some great ones. Uh, 
Um, All That I'm Cracked Up to Be by Jen Trinan is great. Yeah. Uh, Lori Lindeen's book, Pedal Pusher, is great. I just read one by another Minneapolis musician, Michelle Leon from uh, Babes in Toyland, and it's just beautiful. Um, so there's some, re- I mean, there's some great ones and it's, and then I've got some friends who are writing sort of novels that are, uh, that are not yet out, but, um, uh, a friend of mine from Atlanta has got a, a great, uh, sort of novel of, uh, sort of related stories all about a band that's really cool. And none of this surprises me because, um, you know, what, what, as you guys know, but maybe some of the listeners don't know is that. Um, a lot of the rock world is just a bunch of nerds. Mm-hmm. You know, they may, they some of them look cool on stage. A lot of them don't. Um, b- but you would never know that they're sort of like during the day, just kind of squirreled away reading books and um, you know doing stuff like that. So um, you know. The, the, there's a lot of great books out there by various folks. There's there's plenty of ones I haven't read, but I've heard great things about. Yeah, I think that that evolves out of there's a, you know, in the 70s, rock stars and musicians were these, you know, gods up on stage, like Led Zeppelin and Robert Plant and, you know, Stephen Tyler of Aerosmith or whoever, this, you know, these larger than life characters and when punk comes around and alternative music and underground becomes much more like human and it's like people can i don't know it it drew people in who were more you know interested in not just rock as arena rock spectacle but like right i mean down-to-earth experience there is of course a kind of a punk spectacle yeah Uh, and I was actually painfully aware when I started writing my book that my book lacked any kind of punk uh, spectacle. A great, um, a, a great book, which is not a memoir, but a sort of a, almost a, a sort of a history of indie rock, is by Mike Michael Azarad mm-hmm. called "Our Band Could Be Your Life," and it is just any any anyone who has not read that book has to go out and. and buy it and read it. It's just such a great picture of that whole world. But you know, a lot of what Michael was describing in that book is not what I was going to be able to describe in our book because we were not an indie punk band sort of uh, eating leftover McDonald's. We actually paid for our own McDonald's. You know, <laughs> We had enough money in our per diems to like buy our own McDonald's. Uh, we didn't. We didn't necessarily have the budget to throw color TVs off of balconies like Led Zeppelin did, nor were we the kind of people who would have done that. Um, we had this sort of, um, for lack of a better term, sort of middle-class existence uh, in the rock world, which is something I kind of wanted to capture in my book because I thought this is a picture you don't really see that often, actually. You, you know, the, the, the stories about rock are either about grand successes uh, you know excessive success or almost tragically romanticized failure and i wanted to write something that was kind of that was neither of those because that was not what we had experienced ourselves well i think the thing that uh, i've seen and and jake can probably attest to this too is that you know the people of our generation and and maybe the the bands just before that there seems to be like this and jay you probably noticed this when we would play with bands you could tell the people were like they were making music not just because they liked music but because because they were creative people Mm. so it's not surprising people would go on to like write books or do art in some form or fashion and then there would be bands that like oh you're just here for the the girls and the and the booze like this you playing a shredding guitar is not going to last past, you know, right. if, if you don't make it with the, you know, the record that you've got, it's, it's over with and you're going on to an office job somewhere. Like right. there's clearly a, a difference with people who don't see like rock and roll as the end, but it's just merely a, and Jay's, you know, a creative person who works in graphic design and done lots of creative stuff. And I have my other creative outlets. So, 
I think that, um, you know, this sort of me transitioning into you writing the book. And then, um, so you are currently, uh, I believe it's an adjunct professor. Yes. Sarah Lawrence. Yes. So how did, how did you end up, does the book start you on that path or how did you end up? Yeah. Um, I had, um, so when Semisonic was recording our first record, um, in LA, there was an intellectual historian whose work kind of fascinated me. And just on a lark, I wrote him and I said, listen, I know you don't talk to people like me, but I'm just a really big fan of your, you know, books. And would you be willing to have an iced tea with me? And he said, oh, hell, come on out to the house and um, meet the family. So I did. And then we sort of, you know, I got invited back and... Then I met, um, while I was there, a guy named Brian Morton, who was a friend of theirs, who was a novelist. And uh, we had a nice chat. You know, it might have lasted all of half an hour. Um, And this was in 1996. And then two years ago, um, he called me and said, listen, um, I see now that you've not only had this successful music career, but you wrote a book. And I remember meeting you, and I, I just have this hunch that you would, you know, make a good teacher. Would you be interested in that? And I I was thrilled because I had always sort of fantasized about being a teacher. And um, so so I did it, and it's been great. I just, it's so rewarding and fun. And, um, yeah, I really, I love the students and, um, and the work. Is there a connection in terms of um getting up in front of an audience and getting oh, up in front much. of a classroom a teaching is a performing art okay and that's why a lot of teachers get really nervous i mean uh if you have friends who are teachers i my hunch is that most of them will report having jitters having had jitters at least at the beginning if not continuing because it's like you are performing yeah, my wife's a teacher. She yeah. uh, she teaches music K through five. So, I'm I'm sure if I asked her that, she'd be uh, have that answer. So, that's uh, that's interesting because she's also then a performer too. As yeah. far as you know, she used to do plays and musicals and that kind of stuff when she was in high school. Um, but she it's interesting. She's on the other end of it, and I don't know if I, this is this is going to lead me to another question I have, but she can't improvise because she comes from this world of reading notes and having the music written down. And I come from not being able to read music and I can sit down and just play something that I hear. And she just like looks at me like I'm speaking Chinese. If I, (laughs) if I'm like, Hey, let's just jam on this E minor F chord thing. And she's like, what? Um, in the book, you talk about writing string parts and working with, uh, I believe it's like the, Los Angeles Orchestra for well they were member they were they were LA session players. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So did you have a background in composing or or how did that come about cuz you didn't really get into Yeah, I mean I I had played cello as a kid. I think I mentioned okay. it in the book. Okay. And um I you know I grew up playing cello and um and I had done string arrangements before I hooked, you know, got into a band with uh, Dan and John. Um, I did string arrangements, including even some for their band, Trip Shakespeare. Okay. So um, I had, you know, um, a little bit of experience doing it, and the experience was just like totally trial and error. Um, but yeah, I had done that, and I it was it's really uh, it's really interesting work. Now, do you have to write out all of the parts? in yeah. you know, music yeah. notation so now they have software so if you have bad handwriting and and or i mean it's it's very convenient because it used to be um in fact while i was um doing you know the, the charts i did sort of near more earlier in my career you did you back then you really had to write it all out and then um along came music software that would make it all much easier so that you could, you write in, you you write, you enter in the score, and then it would generate the, it can generate the parts from the score. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's all, that's all foreign to me. I, 
I can't. You could, you know, it would make sense in in ten minutes if I were if I fly me down there and I'll, I'll <laughs> okay. show you. How <laughs> um, so, I, I know you, you said you got the the teaching offer after the book, and did you have any thoughts about um, after there was the talk in, in towards the end of the book about you know the band taking some time off, and um, was there thoughts about well, you know maybe I would like to do something solo or work with some other musicians on a you know maybe a different style of music, and because you had come from playing in in. Uh, what was it like funk yeah and and had you had any thoughts about pursuing that I did. okay um you know i mean i still do little bits of music here and there i play sort of with some punk rock guys which is kind of new for me i mean I, i'm playing at tempos i never dreamed of in semisonic um and uh i occasionally collaborate on some songwriting things or some you know, once in a while I get the odd arrangement gig or something like that. Um, but you know, I, uh, for, for whatever reason, writing is sort of the thing that I do the most of. Gotcha. Jam hogging all the questions. Do you have some, um, well, you touched on, um, some people stay, you know, uh, are here for the long run. I think it's been fascinating to watch. Um, you know, musicians quite a bit older than, than us as they get, you know, into their 60s and 70s, you know, they're still going. And then there's and so a lot of them are hyper successful. So it becomes a little bit easier because, you know, they've established a career. And then there's others that are less successful, but it doesn't matter. Like they just keep with it. And it's just, it's their job. It's what they do. Is that right. something that, um, you know, that you knew one way or the other when you got into this, uh, you know, how you were going to end up in terms of that trajectory? Was this, you consider yourself a, a, a lifer or uh, did you always know it was going to be something that was, you know, a little less important in terms of a career path? Well, I mean, so I wouldn't say that it's any less important now. It's just that um, uh, I guess what's important to me is like getting my voice out there uh, one way or another. And, um, right now sort of, you know, writing is the way I do that. But, um, you know, uh, I think, I think all of these cases are different. Um, I think one thing that was really hard for me was getting used to, uh, touring, which is not something you even think about until you're doing it. Mm. Like you just think, well, I love making music and uh, and playing shows is fun and uh, I, it wouldn't have just be a blast to just be doing that all the time. And then you actually see how exhausting it is to actually go out there and do it every night. It's exhausting, mm -hmm. and um, and it's 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 not only physically exhausting; it's mentally exhausting. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that's. Um, some of the people who keep doing it do it in spite of the exhaustion. Some of them do it because they're they just love performing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, back earlier when we were talking about how uh, bands are now making their money by touring a lot, that's a really exhausting way to make a living. Yeah, and I don't th I don't you know when people say, well, now bands can make money by touring, and shouldn't they do that? And shouldn't they be playing shows? Isn't that what we need more of? That's all well and good, but. Um, it's exhausting and you know it's really hard for instance to have a family when you're on the road you know we were on the road 200 days out of the year and our record company was telling us you're not out on the road enough wow so you know bands who were really doing what the record company wanted to do were playing 250 shows a year and they'd be out on the road for 300 days and i imagine they had to be stressful not only on the band but dan especially considering he had just had a, a child, um, yeah. and she was premature, so there yeah, was medical was, concerns. Was, you know, needed intensive medical care at the beginning of her life, and um, yeah, that was super stressful. But it's even stressful if you've got a long, if you know, suppose you're married or you have like a partner, um, and you're out on the road and you have to talk to that person over the phone. And, you know, you've probably done that. 
It's not the easiest way yeah. to connect a relationship. Well, in our Do- case, we made her the merchandise uh, person in roadie. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> that was um, Jay's Jay's girlfriend and then wife. Okay, we, good. We brought her along and and she because uh, we would always be like after the show if we didn't have somebody you have to run somebody have to run to the merchandise table so you could hawk your CDs and and T-shirts and uh, it didn't make sense so it was like well we have this extra person right <laughs> do, do, do you remember there being um, do you remember a turning point where you it sort of hit you that wow this is this is tough. Oh, right off, the bat. right off the okay. bat, actually. Okay. It got easier as I sort of learned to enjoy it. But at the very beginning of all of our touring, I thought I've made a major miscalculation. Mm. Cannot do this. Um, and then I and then I came to really love it, you know, and I really looked forward to all of our touring. Uh, keep in mind, however, all this time I was, for the most part, single. So, you know, I was just out there sort of just like having fun and meeting people and mm-hmm. shows and just thinking about like trying to advance our career. I didn't have any kind of domestic um, questions that would have, you know, I had no sort of relationship that was suffering as a result of me being on the road. But musicians who are touring musicians and who have families or relationships it's really tough on them. Sure. Do you have any tours that pop in your mind in terms of being either, um, you know, among the harder or among the, the more fun? I mean, I think the hardest ones for me were just at the beginning where we were just like going into clubs every day. And I was performing for people who knew Dan and John, but didn't know me. Because they were, they Dan and John had been in another band called Trip Shakespeare that was a very popular band, uh, especially in the Midwest. And so um, I felt very much like, well, people are coming to size. One of the things they're going to do here is be sizing up the new guy. Uh, so that was, you know, and I had not yet gotten my sea legs, as it were, uh, for being on the road. So I think those, those those first tours just around the Midwest in small clubs were really tough for me. Um, I think, I, you know, the most fun tours, um, I mean, the U.K. was always fun. We were actually much bigger stars in the U.K. than we ever were in the U.S. Uh, you know, we actually would get, we get stopped on the streets of London and, uh, you know, the, 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 the customs officials at the airport Mm. Uh, would say, hey, you know, you you know, uh, aren't you guys semisonic? You know, th- th- never would happen in the U.S. Um, so those were fun. And then, we, you know, I think my favorite show was one we played in Mexico City, um, where the fans, um, we played in this arena for 10,000 people, and they all, what they do in Mexico City, they flick their lighters, but they don't just stand there holding up their lighters. They flick them in time with the music. <laughs> so it was this really amazing light show that the fans there do that is just cooler than any rock show you've ever seen. When I mean, the, in other words, the crowd there was like cooler than any band. I've right, ever seen. right, right, right. When, when you've, you know, at, at that point, I think you guys had, you, know, you were well into touring for Feeling Strangely Fine, which is in a you know, couple years into the existence of the band. Yeah, you've you've become sort of I don't want to use the term well well oiled machine, but that's kind of what it is. Yeah, no, in terms we had of a, like, yeah, we had a groove, we had a rhythm to our operation. Are are you able to play, but then sort of divorce your physical self and sort of just take in what the crowd is doing in a a situation like that where you can your muscle memory just sort of takes over and you can just be like amazed by the fact that this crowd is flicking their lighters in unison with what you're doing generally speaking i would try not to do that i would try to stay very focused on what i was up to because that's how i would drum better is to not sort of sit back and go whoa look at the crowd you know or whoa we're on letterman oh my god you know that's kind of the last thing I would want to do, what I would really want to do is to say, okay, we're coming out of the verse. Let me, let me just give this, let me give the music a little bit of a rise as we come into the chorus, but don't rush, you know? And then we'd, 
uh, come out of the chorus, and I'd think, I think actually this verse, let me, let's try it a little uh, more intense this tonight, you know, or whatever. But I'd always be thinking musically. However, in the case of, in rare cases, like in Mexico City, you're just, your mind is blown. And you, you, you know, you just kind of, you kind of can't believe it. Or like the first time we played for a stadium full of people when closing time became a big hit, um, I was practically thrown off my drum throne by the energy from the crowd. And it was, it was astounding. Was that at a, at a one of the big festivals in the UK? Yeah, at HF Festival. <laughs> oh, oh, the one in DC. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you know that song was going to be a huge hit? I mean, now well, when, you, when uh, you hear it, it's like, duh, obviously. It's it's like, it fits I'll the... Give you, I'll give you a two-part answer, which will sort of help you understand. Mm-hmm. Yes, I heard it as a hit. And I had heard songs on our first album as a hit that, uh, you know, never got released. So, I mean, or, you know, really never got a fighting chance to become a hit. Mm-hmm. So, um I knew it was a great song, and I knew that was the song to be a single. But of course, by now I had had a whole record of of like here of of songs that I knew were just great songs, and watching them not become hits. Mm-hmm. So you know, did I know it would become a hit? Well, I knew it should have been a hit, but I didn't know it would be a hit because by now I was like, boy, things can really get messed up. Well, and I think in looking back, Jay and I both. You know, dove into the the discography to to prep. I, I was most familiar with feeling strangely fine, but I remember when All About Chemistry came out. I, I didn't. I, Great Divide was probably something that we played at the radio station, but that wasn't like my headspace at the time. In terms of, mm-hmm. I, I was listening to like, you know, weird music at that point because I was you know two years into being in college and was yeah you know exploring like weird industrial music and country alt country at the same time. And so like hearing like a, I guess a traditional sort of pop rock band that drew influence from like everything from the police to like big star to, you know, uh, you know, XTC and what have you, all these like sort of, that was like, I was like, Whoa, um, that's not my thing. But going back and listening to it now, I'm like, Oh, what? I missed the boat. <laughs> on. <laughs> Well, a lot of this stuff. My friend, you are not alone. Yeah. <laughs> but I definitely hear, and it, and it probably has to do with the mixes, and it also helps that Closing Time has, like, the chorus that was, you know, the, the soft verse, loud chorus format that was prevalent in the, in the 90s. The Great Divide is a much more subtle approach to that style. There are soft verses and loud choruses, but it's not as jarring in a good way in the same way that closing time is. So I think that's why Jay and I probably are like, I think we even did an episode on One Hit Wonders last year. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, which is a tag that got thrown around with a lot of bands, which I always considered funny because I always thought of this, that album, I always thought of as a three single, even though. Well, it's at least a two-single album. I, yeah. I feel, I mean, it's, of course, uh, who am I? To, it's, I'm not right. really the person who's who can say one way or the other because I'm in the band. But I always thought that technically we were at least like a two-and-a-half hit wonder. Right, right. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, but sure, yeah, we had, we had um, you know, cons- especially when you think about our overseas uh, existence where sure. we had other songs were better known than Closing Time. Well, because I remember people, when that album came out, Closing Time was huge, to the point where people, and I think you even talked about it in the book, where people were like, you got to back off. On the, People are going to get sick of this and be like, what? Yeah. People are going to get sick of it. But I remember people, even at the radio station, were like, oh no, Secret Smile is the best song on that, on yeah. that album. And that and Singing in My Sleep were like, probably in our college rotation for months probably maybe even like six or eight months because that record just did not leave from the way that it was set up was like, you'd have the heavy rotation, medium light, and then what we called currents, which was like anything that was going back for the last six or eight months could be in that current section. And I don't think that album left for, you know, a long time based on those three singles alone. Um, And in terms of, 
you know, the first album. Now going back, I hear like the singles and I completely understand why the album in terms of having a commercial impact, like Down in Flames totally is not a single. Terrible choice. No, it's terrible, it's, terrible, terrible choice. I was that was that was the one moment up until that point I was like, well, I'm the new guy and I don't know anything. And then when that happened, I was like, wait a goddamn minute. Um, but you know, we had to play ball because it was the, the 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 new label head's choice, and there was a little bit of like a political thing where you don't want to uh, get get off on the wrong foot with the label head. And that's weird to me because I always thought, and this is where Jay and I have a completely different experience is that when we would get albums in to the station, and maybe this is not how they do it at the big radio stations, and this is what I learned, is that we would listen to the albums individually, and then we would come back to our like music department meeting and say, well, these are the top like five best songs on this album. And we wouldn't go like, well, this is what so-and-so is playing. It'd be like, these are what we think are the five best songs. And then we'd listen to them as a group and vote on, well, that's the best song. And I just kind of thought at the time, well, this is most our... our, our record label does it they get a whole bunch of people together and they listen no. to the whole album and they pick the, their favorite song but it wasn't at that at all no i think each record label is probably different um and um you know unfortunately you know our, the guy who was the head of our label was actually a really big fan of the band and um it would be wrong to paint him as a bad guy uh in terms of our career he was actually very much on our side and probably our career lasted as long as it did because he actually really liked the band. Um, but he just didn't have an ear for singles. Um, and you know, having an ear for singles is a hard thing. Um, uh, I think it's always easy to sort of go back and criticize these people in hindsight. Uh, but it's not necessarily fair. Um, it's, you know, I remember when we would be putting together our albums, people, it's, you know, Dan, our songwriter, you know, and he's now gone on to write, you know, really big hits, like someone like you, he co-wrote that with Adele. Right. Um, and he won the Grammy for song of the year with the Dixie Chicks. He writes great songs and it would always be a struggle to just to think about well which song is gonna which songs are gonna stay on the record and which ones are coming off um so you know it's not easy but i i did really feel like in the case of our first record they really blew it um and uh i there was a song on our first album called fnt which i just thought was hands down the obvious choice for first single Mm -hmm. and um hear all of my AM radio listening of the of the 1970s just was speaking so loudly to me. I was just like, God, this is you, this is the song that is the signature sound of the band. This is the thing to, to start off with. And then once people go for this, we can sort of, you know, I, I think one problem with Semisonic was, and one problem the label had was, um, and, and you guys can comment on this because you're, you know, you listen to the records, um, the records were kind of eclectic. Yeah. That's a problem. I mean, yep. you know, uh, when the band was sort of going around being shopped, you know, it was sort of viewed as an advantage. Like, oh, God, they can do so many different things. What's not to love? But actually, that's a problem when it comes to choosing a single. Yeah. Because you're like, well, what side of the band? Are, who is this band? What what are, are they like a loud band or a soft band? You know, earlier you said, well, you guys were so... Uh, nice and subtle we were trying to be anything but subtle i mean i think that just reflects how our our personalities were sort of unfortunately too subtle well and yeah because go ahead jay well i was just gonna say i feel like feeling strangely fine is um the the least eclectic of of between that and yeah it's uh, the most focused i think it's our best right and i think there's something about there's a consistency there with the songwriting. It sounds like the band, you guys know who you are at that point. Um, I also think the production is right. Like, it's just, um, the drums are very present, which I love. I love that. I love the sound of that. And then it allows, um, it allows just the right elements to, to be layered on top of that so you can really appreciate Dan's songwriting. You know, there's not so much going on that it gets lost, where I think in 
some on the Great Divide. Uh, on Great Divide, it gets a little bit. Uh, there's a little too much going on sometimes, and there is too much. Little... There's too. There's too much, and we learn from that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I think also, um, you know, I think with Great Divide, and I love Great Divide, and I love the work we did on it. I think that we were aiming to be a sort of um, a clever, quirky band. Mm. And I think that what we found that we could do with Feeling Strangely Fine was that we could be a band that produced moving music, you know, music that was actually uh, moving. And I think that we, um, you know, our, uh, I would say the other thing was that um, we found a production team uh, we had our, our, our producer Nick Launay, who was who really like understood the part of us who um, loved bands like The Jam and uh, you know the uh, Big Star and stuff like that. Um, but then also uh, Bob Clear Mountain, the guy who mixed it, um, you know part of his influence on that album that I, you know, the obvious thing you would say with Claremont is, well, he makes it sound big, which he did. But the other thing with Bob Claremont is he really cut his teeth on R and B and there's a sort of R and B. I always think of like semi-sonic as like a, a pop singer songwriter, uh, guitar band with R and B influences in the rhythm section. And Bob Clear Mountain really brought that out. Right. I think that's where I'm going with the just the presence of the of the drums and bass. There's just there's just a bedrock there that um, you would yeah. hear in RBM music. So that it's it's that rhythm, and then over top, the main focus is the vocal, and then you add enough guitar to just fill it out or to embellish pieces here and there. It's not a even though you know the guitar is there, and I think you guys are. You know, probably a guitar band. It doesn't sound like necessarily a typical guitar rock, rock album where it's yeah, you know, and all then, guitars in your face. Yeah, well, we didn't want it to. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think that's all. I, you know, I think another part, a thing about feeling strangely fine, it just snuck through at the right time. Mm. Well, it uh, hit right before the collapse of and consolidation of all the radio to. Well, there's there's that angle, the sort of structure of radio, but I'm also thinking just in terms of the sound of alternative radio. Yeah. Um, there was, um, I, I think that had the record been released even six months later, it might not have succeeded. Um, because Closing Time was came onto the radio right after um, Bittersweet Symphony and Brick. Uh, Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve mm -hmm. and Brick by Ben Folds 5 had sort of opened up alternative rock radio for something other than like Mountain Dew, skateboard, head bashing stuff. Um, all, a lot of which I love, so I'm not speaking derisively. I just, uh, that's not who we were, um, you know, and so it was like, Alternative rock radio sounded a little older for just a moment, and that's when Closing Time had its just happened to appear. Mm, so it yeah. was, in a way, it was a really kind of a fluke. Yeah, and, and grunge, which had dominated the beginning of the decade, had sort of petered out at that point. So there was well, all of this, like 96 to 98 is just a free-for-all for, and, and like you said, like 98, like you guys got in like just before the deadline when it became like everything went really heavy, like with Limp Bizkit and Corn. Well, and... Went, actually at first it went boy band and then it went heavy. Yeah, it's true. And, uh, but, uh, either way, um, it went younger. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think one, a big complaint that the label would make about Semisonic is you guys are too old. Uh, well... um, the, <laughs> the complaint coming to us from, uh, through, you know, the, our manager and our A and R guy. Oh, how old were you at the time? Well, mid thirties. Yeah. We were too old. It was a totally legitimate complaint. Well, 
I mean, I'm not saying I, I'm not saying that I think radio should be you know should be ageist. I'm just saying it was real. Right, and your influences were a little bit older than a band that was in their twenties. Like when I listen to Secret Smile, I hear like seventies Rolling Stones in a lot yeah, of yeah, seventies Rolling Stones or even Al Green. Yeah, like there's a Stacks. there's like, a groove there that nobody else was doing at the time. Sure, um, but I'm just saying, you know, uh, in order to understand how all of this happened, you actually have to understand the mentality. Right, and we were too old. Which now seems ridiculous, but well, it totally sure. makes sense for the, it makes sense for the time. You're you're 100 percent right in that. Yeah, you weren't you weren't guys, you know, skateboarding with your hats backwards, and you know. Yeah, or, or like I mean, we would have been. We were the band whose fans would have been beat up by a lot of the other fans at rock festivals. <laughs> yeah, you, you weren't going on warp tour. Band. Yeah, you never want to be that band. No. No, and in some ways, I think that's why, like, Great Divide feels to me more like a classic. In listening to it now, listening to the songwriting and the production, it feels more like something of the era of, like, 80s REM or something like yeah. that. Like, it's drawing from more of an 80s alternative where you can yeah. be more eclectic and, and, and do stuff like that. Whereas, yeah, and we would have said, you know, if, you, if someone had said, yeah, people are going to hear this and hear... REM and 80s stuff, we would have been flipped out and like, oh, that's awesome. But of course, at the time, that's the last thing mm. uh, that the radio wanted to hear. Right. Well, the REM didn't want to sound like REM anymore, so that makes sense. Yeah. At that point. So, Jay, what else you got? How are we doing here? It's getting... Yeah, getting, we're, yeah. we're getting close we're about to about an hour. Okay. So, do you have any other questions, Jay? I want to uh, keep us on yeah, track. No. Yeah, no, I think we can turn the corner. Okay, excellent. So you mentioned about writing. Are you working on any uh, new books? Or I am working on another book about which I, I'm going to say nothing, but uh, it's another memoir. Excellent. Yeah. Is it, uh, is it part two where you take us from the end of... <laughs> No, it's it's not. That's a that you know. It's it's not. So you want to be an author, or uh, here's the rest of what happened to Semisonic. It's kind of unrelated to that. So it's the, so it's the prequel. It's a pre and postquel. Nice. And then I saw on your Facebook page that you offered to do to give feedback on people's uh, writings. Can you talk a little bit about? Just a writing coach. I mean, it's just basically taking my writing teacher stuff freelance. Okay. Yeah. What sort of stuff do you provide feedback on? Like, are you, like, is it all like novels or nonfiction, or, or are you talking about like screenplays or of stuff? Pardon? Um, yeah, it just depends on what they what the person brings to the door. Okay. And so, if if somebody wants to do that, they should just hit you up on Facebook. I'm guessing. Or they actually, they should go to the website, which is called relaxintowriting.com. Okay. Excellent. Well, Jacob, thank you for joining us on this uh, Tuesday evening and talking about all this fun music stuff. Yeah, and, thank uh, you, guys. Thanks for the invite. It was fun. Absolutely. And um, you also have a website. What is it called? Is it Portable Philosophy? Yeah, I blog about um, arts, uh, music writing uh cre creativity i blog about creativity on portable philosophy excellent and uh, are you on twitter you're on twitter right i tweet but i i think i i have just now passed the point where i have more followers than people i follow so i am uh i'm not much of a twitter presence i haven't learned how to do the 140 character thing uh so um you know probably Portable philosophy is um, my most sort of prominent public, uh, you know, place for my writing, unless you're a Facebook friend. Uh, just go with all emojis. That's what I do. Yeah. I just have to. Uh... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> just, just a shrug every now and then. Yeah, just a shrug. Once again, I'm too old. Yeah. You just like. Politics, shrug. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. 
All right. Thanks, Jacob. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. Hey, Jay, I got to go grab Kira. She's barking. I'll be right back. Okay, yeah. Oh, that's a first. <laughs> I've got three three dogs, and he's got one, and we've never had to uh, pause the show to go gather <laughs> one of them. So bear with us. Okay, yeah. Are you, uh, you, are you in Minnesota? or? No, I live in New York now. Okay. In- yeah. Okay. Oh. Kira, Kira, Kira. Kira, you angry terrier. Yeah. Somebody walked by the front door. Not not in front of the front door, but like on the sidewalk. And she got Well, then she's got to bark, man. That's right. She's protecting the house. That's what she's getting paid for. How she, dare they? I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's a 12-year-old Karen Terrier. She should be pretty mellow by this point. But Has she recouped? <laughs> uh no she will never recoup okay well there you go no uh we won't get into her various issues she probably needs a, a shrink like metallica more than anything yeah. there you go <laughs>